371, 371, a child of the king. 371. And let's give some testimonies. We had 96 this morning, and uh, we had one join the church this morning, and uh, the old memory is not working the way it should, but 
Uh, all those willing to receive Jason Emily as a member of our church, say amen. amen. Any opposed? And of course, we always love the silence. Sorry about that, Jason. And uh, he said to me Thursday night, you want me to join tonight? And I said, well, normally we do that on Sunday morning. And, and uh, I'm going to start writing notes and things. Um, but uh, praise the Lord uh, that Alvin's mom and both Jason have joined the church. And we're praising the Lord for that. The plumbing permit. Official. And uh, the plumber stopped by and he said, now, the, my man who's going to help you with this job, he's, gonna, he's probably going to call you tomorrow, which was Saturday. Didn't call. Uh, so uh, that is the prayer request. But praise the Lord, we have made it thus far. We've been after this sheet of paper since last November. And so this allows us to legally do the plumbing work. And, and of course, this building, I, I think, was... Uh, manufactured by the Ford Motor Company. You have to loosen the muffler to change the spark plugs. Uh, but uh, uh, it looks like downstairs where that little pink, we call it the pink bathroom. Uh, it's not a bathroom anymore. Uh, it's used for storage. And uh, it looks like we're going to be able to open that whole thing up and level the floor and make one nice workshop down there. Just about the time we finish all the work, we'll finally have a place to do it. Amen? And uh, so, uh, but we praise the Lord that uh, uh, things are moving in the right direction. Uh, we had a lady with us this morning. She said, I just checked the Internet. I was looking for a church that was King James and said, yours was closest one. So I found it. And so praise the Lord that uh, those things are still working. All right. Any other praises? to see your hand moving in our midst and Lord we just want to thank you for being so good and caring for us and opportunities to tell others about your goodness Lord we thank you for using us in your service in Jesus name Amen Brother Franz 27 427 sweet by and by 427 
best time to take care of this is maybe uh, right now will probably be as good a time as any but uh, we're going constantly trying to go through our missionaries and uh, we maintain a list of questionable uh, things and brother Zach don't start the recording quite yet um, so you're not recording right now are you Okay, you know, just turn it off for a moment, John. And uh, let's turn to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. And uh, I'll have to talk to my typist. Of course, I am my typist. And so if I don't listen to myself, we have problems here. Uh, point B under new, Roman numeral 1, sub point 2. Uh, just draw a line through that that was somehow left over from last week it didn't erase when I erased all the things and I didn't catch it so uh, that is that horns were to be on the four corners is absolutely meaningless when we're talking about the praise and labor because it doesn't have corners all right but uh, Exodus chapter 30 Exodus chapter 30 and uh, the unit where the item that we're going to talk about really and truthfully is one of the most mysterious items, uh, pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. No actual dimensions are given of it, uh, the height, the, the, the width, the amount of water that it held, any of these things, that, uh, they're, they're just not there. And when Solomon built the temple, he made 10 lavers, and each one of them held over 140 gallons each. And uh, then there was a brazen sea uh, that was to fill the 10 lavers, and I couldn't even find a figure on that, but it was a, it was a pool that was roughly 33 feet in circumference and probably somewhere between 12 and 20 foot deep. I mean, it was as big as a large swimming pool. And, of course, it was made out of solid brass, and it was the, the place where they would replenish the smaller labors from the large, uh, and it was called the Brazen Sea. But um, let's just read what the Bible tells us about this item. Verse 17, Exodus chapter 30. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal, and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall, wa shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go in to the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire under the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not, it shall be a statue forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. So this labor was to be made of brass. And if you'll remember, as we're talking about typology and pictures in the Bible, uh, it can be somewhat subjective. And the only thing that we can do to keep it from just being your interpretation or understanding or your ideas about this thing is we have to follow that type or picture through the scripture and if we can get uh, agreement then we can know that our understanding of the type is 
of a biblical origin. And as we talked about the brazen altar last week, the altar of burnt offering, we talked about brass being a representation of the judgments of God. As you take the judgments of God and encapsulate your life in them, that gives you protection from the fires. That means the death of self. And, and that's what keeps the Christian out of the insane asylum. Uh, that's why many other people are in those places is because they hate themselves. They want the death of themselves. And so we have to put them in a padded cell to keep that from happening. We protect ourselves with the judgments of God, and we can have an honest assessment of who and what we are and still love God and still have a purpose and a reality to life. I just love that. It beats all of psychology to pieces. Amen? And so if we follow that idea of brass being judgment of God, the laver, we'll notice, is made totally of brass. There's no wood, there's no other substance in the laver. So this is a place of God's judgment. Now let's be careful. Are we talking about salvation here? No, we are not. And we'll go through that in a minute. What we are talking about, and the title of this is an understanding of how we're to use the Bible in our daily life. The brazen laver, as a functional unit, it actually served a purpose. It had things that it was to do. And as we look at the function and the practice of the laver, we can learn and we can understand how God wants us to use his judgments, his word, in our daily life. Now the brazen laver was not a very complicated thing. It was a brass bowl of water. Uh, chances are it would have been three to four feet in diameter, something about that big, and it could have been two or three feet deep. Uh, it would have uh, held a, a fairly good quantity of water. Now you remember the only priest at this time was Aaron. And his four sons, two of them, which would succumb to God's judgment because of their foolishness and their disobedience to God's word. So we're talking about three priests or three men washing their hands and their feet. Uh, we're not talking about something that had to be 4,000 gallons in capacity or even anywhere near the size of our baptistry. It was a place for them to wash their hands and their feet. And there's an awful lot of guesswork is, is simply what it is, talking about the foot of the laver. Uh, could I just explain to you that the foot of the laver was the stand upon which the laver was balanced? That was just simply all there was to it, that uh, you take water and you put it in a bowl or you put it in a tank. What does the water do? It sloshes around. There had to be something to keep the labor from turning over, keep it stable, and put it at a height that was suitable for the priest to wash both his hands and his feet. If the, if the labor was four foot high, uh, he would have to be somewhat of a contortionist uh, to get his feet up in the air. Uh, uh, I don't even know what you would sign that. But uh, uh, 
Uh, he'd have to be one of those karate guys. Maybe you could use that. Uh, all stretched out of shape so he could get his foot four foot in the air to wash it. Uh, so the, the foot held the laver. And let's just go over and we'll touch on this. The laver had uh, some very unusual source. Um, one uh, author said that there was uh, over three and a half tons of brass that was cast and built into different items that made up what we call the Old Testament tabernacle. That's using a hundred pound talent of brass. Uh, if you use a 75 pound, which I think is the standard weight uh, of, of a talent, uh, you still come up with more brass, uh, the brass weighing more than our church van does, uh, almost 5,300 pounds. So uh, a lot of brass was put into the tabernacle, went into the making of the tabernacle, but the laver was not part of the regular making of the tabernacle. It had a special source. Let's go to verse 8 of chapter 38. And he made the laver of brass and the foot of it of brass of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, there's been an awful lot made, and again, most of it is simply guesswork, of the women assembling, which assembled at the ta door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And uh, simply, there was... I believe the simplest answer to this was there was an offering that was asked for. And it was brought in, and these women brought their looking glasses. Now, looking glasses was the old term for mirror. But a mirror was not made out of glass and silver oxide in those days. It was usually made out of polished metal. But the metal had to be flawless. If you had a spot in the, in the brass and polished it, then you would have a spot wherever that spot happened to show up in your reflection. Uh, it had to be the purest metal, the finest quality, and it would also have to be somewhat light in color. It would not be what we consider brass, dark yellow. It would be uh, almost a... Uh, a translucent white. In fact, one of the commentators said that someone had brought him a finely polished brass mirror that actually gave a better reflection than any crystal that he had in his uh, access to. It was just a, a finely made, polished piece of brass that the women were using to make sure that they looked proper. And um, later on, there, uh, there is mention of the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle. Someone said they were there to wash the priest's robes and, and attend. No, no, no. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's not what it was at all. But uh, the women could not enter the tabernacle proper. If they were going to pray and do their worship to God, if they wanted to come to the tabernacle to be as close as they could, unless they were the subject of some type of actual uh, ceremony or something, they were 
allowed to come to the door. So ladies, if you wanted to have a prayer meeting, where would you assemble? At the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And that's as simple as it is. We don't need to go any farther than that. They gave their looking glasses. And by the way, don't you think that would be a very prized possession? To have something that you could actually make sure that you look proper in. Ladies, how many of you would be able to live without a mirror? Esther says, I could. That's because you have other people taking care of you. But uh, the simple truth of the matter is, hey, guys, how many of you would like to try life without a mirror? I don't see any hands going up. Uh, and so this was a very valuable, this was the finest brass that was available. Someone said that, they made the laver out of the looking glass so the priest could look at himself in the reflection of the laver and make sure that he was clean. Uh, and uh, Mr. Gill adroitly pointed out uh, he was supposed to wash his hands and his feet, not his face. And, and so that was not the purpose. The purpose was this was the finest and the purest and, and the most special and valuable brass that the children of Israel had available to them, and it was that brass and that brass alone that the labor was made from. Now, we go back to Exodus chapter 30, and here's just the, the uh, usage of this. They were to wash. It said, for Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. Now, why didn't Aaron and, son, and his sons need to take a bath in the brazen labor? Well, that was very simple when we get to the priesthood before he put on the priestly garments, before he was consecrated as a priest, he had to take a bath then. Then he was anointed with the anointing oil. Should he take a bath with the anointing oil on, he would wash off the anointing oil and have to take have to be reconsecrated as a priest. And so the labor was not a picture of salvation. It was a picture of momentary, sometimes we say daily cleansing, but the priest did not stop at the labor once a day. It was not the morning and evening sacrifice. This was momentary. This was every moment of the day. If the priest was serving in the tabernacle, his attention was not very far from the brazen labor. Now here's why. Twice in these few verses that describe the usage of the labor, it tells us that they die not. If the priest approached to the altar to offer a sacrifice on the altar and his hands and his feet were dirty, God said, listen, I'm going to kill you. You're going to die. If you go into the holy place and your hands or your feet are dirty, you are going to die. God says, I'm going to take your life. No priest is going to serve me with dirty hands and dirty feet. Now that makes it pretty serious, doesn't it? 
before each sacrifice, the priest would wash his hands. Because before the sacrifice, he had to cut the animal open. He had to drain the blood out uh, via the juggler vein into the bowl. The blood had to be poured out at the base of the altar. Certain entrails had to be removed. How many of you have ever actually field-dressed or, or gutted an animal? Um, I'll tell you, that's a messy business. And the priest did that maybe dozens if it was during the festivals, during Passover, during other times, maybe thousands of times in a day where there'd be animals that would have to be offered upon that altar. And so the priest would get his hands dirty while he was preparing the sacrifice. Before he kindled the fire, he would wash his hands. And as he ministered in, put those pieces of that animal on the altar to offer them to the Lord, his hands were clean. Well, as he offered the animal itself, guess what? His hands would get dirty again. His feet would get dirty because he was not allowed to wear shoes and he would walk back and forth. And so he would wash his hands before each sacrifice. He would wash his hands after each sacrifice. Let's just take a moment in the morning. The first thing that he would do would be to scrape the ashes off of the altar to reveal the burning embers that were left over from last night's fire. Guess what? Wash his hands. He would remove those embers into the censer to take into the golden altar in just a few moments for the, uh, sacri for the incense. He would then have to kill the morning sacrifice, wash his hands, put the sacrifice on the altar, wash his hands again, pick up the censer, wash his hands and his feet, go into the holy place and attend to the service of the Lord. There was very little time that he did not spend in the tabernacle that he was not centered around this brazen laver. By the way, the Bible is just very simple here. They were to put water in the laver. How many of you know what happens when you take water and set it in a big brass bowl out in the sunlight? It'll get stale and stagnant pretty quick now won't well if the priest was to get clean the water had to be clean now didn't it and so there would be a constant changing uh, of that water and possibly the labor was very small maybe only held a five or ten gallons so that uh, it would be easily picked up carried over emptied out in an unclean place and fresh water put therein so that the priest would be constantly clean. The water had to be changed constantly. And it says that this was a statute forever. God was never going to change his mind on this. This was going to be something Aaron and his sons were constantly going to do. And in the temple that will be in the uh, city of Jerusalem on earth during the millennial kingdom... Guess what they're going to have in there? They're going to have a laver. Guess where Aaron's sons are going to do in that laver? They're going to wash their hands and their feet. For a thousand years during the millennial kingdom, each sacrifice going back in time and showing the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ. 
Now this job of changing water, I thought was kind of interesting, eventually fell to the Gibeonites. How many people remember the story of the Gibeonites? They were one of the cities of the Canaanites, one of the royal cities. They sent out their ambassadors to Joshua. Remember, they got old moldy bread and they found old rotten sandals and they, they got bags of dust and pounded all over them and all over their animals. And they came in, they said, we be from a far nation and we're come to make peace with you. And Joshua said, what happens if you live among us? And he says, well, we'll be your servants. Because we, we, you know, and they deceived them. And Joshua said in Joshua chapter 9, it says, Ye are cursed because you deceived us, and you will be drawers of water and hewers of wood unto the congregation of Israel, unto the house of my God. Now, I love this picture here because the Gibeonites had no right to the things of God. They were Canaanites. They were under the curse of eternal judgment. Moses had charged Joshua and the people of Israel repeatedly, you're not to make any peace treaties with the Canaanites, you're to destroy every living thing in their cities. And yet when Ezra and Zerubbabel returned, the temple ritual could not be reinstated because they didn't have enough of the descendants of the Gibeonites to take care of the water requirements of the temple. And they took care of that. And they went out specifically seeking the descendants of those Canaanites so that the temple could go on in a ritual. Do you see the picture there? This brazen labor is a connection for us Gentiles to have a part in the service of the worship of the God of Israel. Amen? Now, I'll try to be quick with the application here. Ephesians 5.26. Let's just turn there very quickly. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleansing, cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now here is the work that Jesus does for his church. He did not save us from our sins by the washing of water. We are not water dogs. Uh, we are not baptismal regenerationalists. We do not believe your sins are washed away by being dunked in water. Amen? Your sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. But in your service for Christ, what do we do? We still sin, don't we? Jesus said, I want my church to be glorious. I want it to be without spot or wrinkle. Therefore, I have designed for my church to take a constant bath. 
by the washing of the water of the word. Do you see the picture between this and the brazen laver? You see, that's why you need to be in church every Sunday. Not because I'm the greatest preacher in the world, but you need a spiritual bath. And God's word is going to be presented. And it's going to challenge you. And it's going to do things in your life. And, and I try never to craft a sermon with someone in mind. Uh, I know certain preachers that do that. I can't. Uh, I, I want to get up and have a clear conscience that I don't have so-and-so in my sights. And I'm going to shoot them down with my sermon. Uh, that's not what the message, that's not what Sunday morning, that's not what preaching is about. Preaching is about presenting the Word of God so that the Christian can be washed from the daily defilement, from the momentary defilement that we pick up in our service for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is summertime in New York City. How many of you feel dirty just walking down the street? Get some washing. That's the answer. Stay under the word of God. You cannot stop the birds of temptation from flying over your head. But you can stop them from building a nest and hatching their young in your hair. Amen? Okay, there is a difference there. Temptation is something every one of us face. Different temptations for different people. Certain things bother you that don't bother me. Alcohol has never been a temptation. From the earliest memories I had, my dad pounded in my head. There were three things that I would never do. One was drink alcohol, one was smoke, second was smoke cigarettes, and the third was ride motorcycles. And that was just his rules. And... Uh, does riding motorcycles actually come up to the level of uh, drinking and smoking? No, uh, but killing yourself on one does. And uh, my dad knew exactly what would happen if I ever got on one of those things, and so he warned me. And, and I think I've uh, been better for heeding his judgment. Listen, the washing of the water of the word is a daily momentary process. Keep God's word going through you. It is the process that Jesus has designed so that when we stand before him, we can be presented without spot or wrinkle. This is something that goes on in the church. The labor is a picture of the systematic, regular preaching of God's word. That's why you need to be in the services. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does God get shocked when you sin? No. He already knew every sin that you would ever sin before you were born. It was already written in his book. Does that mean we are little automatons trying to live out the script that God has written from us for us as the Calvinist believes? Absolutely not. God, in his foreknowledge, already knew the choices we would make, and he has given us that opportunity 
to admit our sin before him on a daily, on a momentary basis, and trust and know and have a promise from his word, his judgments, that he is going to be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're battling with a certain sin in your life, and you, well, God promised to cleanse me from all sin, so I guess I don't have to worry about this one. Wrong. God forbid is what the Bible says. That promise ought to make me fight harder. Because God is there. He is faithful and he is just. Let's turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And this is the neat little thing where the looking glasses. Now did Moses, when he wrote about the labor being made from the looking glasses of the women that assembled, know that James was going to write James chapter 1. Of course not. Had no idea. Uh, did James have the brazen labor in mind when he wrote this passage? We have no idea whether he did or did not, but we do know that the Holy Spirit of God was making a connection there. And that's why James put these words in. Verse 22, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a what? In a glass. He's looking into the mirror. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continuing, continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. We are to look into the mirror of this word. God's judgments. The labor is a picture of God's judgment. It is solid brass. There's no nature of man involved you look into the judgments of God's word all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine that's what we believe for reproof that's to tell us when we're wrong for, cor for correction this is how you're going to make it right and for instruction in righteousness this is how you're going to keep it right the brazen laver is a picture of how God's word should be applied to our life. The priest in his service for God was not apart from the laver even for just a few moments. As soon as he had finished offering the sacrifice, where was he? He was back at the laver again. That's how we ought to be with God's word in our life, constantly constantly in God's word. One more wonderful picture, uh, I believe a connection that is, should be made here. John chapter 13, Jesus, after he finished the Passover meal with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, he took water, he girded himself in a towel, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter and verse 6, 
of John chapter 13, And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but he is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. Jesus, the God of heaven, the night he was betrayed, laid aside his garments, wrapped himself in a towel, and began to approach each one of the disciples with a bowl of water and washed their feet and dried them with the towel that he was girded in. Stunned silence on the part of the disciples. Now, certain churches have taken this passage and they wash each other's feet when they come and have church service. How many of you would be up for having someone else wash your feet at church? Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe they need it. I don't know. But uh, the simple truth of the matter is that was not what Jesus was trying to do here. He was not setting an ordinance of foot washing. He was trying to show us that if we're going to be his servants, we're going to have to submit to him for that daily cleansing. Amen? And we are to help one another. You know, how many of, of us can think of times in our life where it was another Christian brother, another Christian sister who came alongside of us in a time of crisis and kept us from doing something very wrong? That ought to be a testimony of what happens in the lives of true Christians. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I hope that sometimes people will think, I can't do that. I've got to go to church tomorrow. I've got to be prepared to worship God. I can't sit here and watch this movie tonight. I, I need to be ready to serve God tomorrow. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get my feet washed instead of filling my mind with garbage. Amen? These are different pictures and applications that we ought to find in this brazen labor. He told Peter, listen, Peter, you don't need a bath. You're already saved. But not every one of you disciples are saved because Judas was still there. He said, but once you're saved, you don't need to be saved again. That's not the labor. But your hands and your feet get dirty and you need to keep them clean. The daily washing of sin, the momentary cleansing, is what the brazen laver is about. The judgments of the laver are the same judgments that protect the wood in the altar from the fire. The wood that makes up the altar, I should say. The picture of God's judgment runs consistently through the uses of brass in the tabernacle. And we'll see that there were 
uh, other uses of brass. There was, uh, depending on what measurement of the talent you use, somewhere between three and, uh, I mean, two and a half and three and a half tons of brass in other components of the tabernacle. That's a lot of brass. And yet, we can follow through those usages, God's judgments. When we went through Psalm 119, how many times did the psalmist say, I love thy judgments? He talked about God's judgments being encouraging. He talked about God's judgments being a blessing and being a protection. He talked about God's judgments doing all these wonderful things. And what do we hear today? Judge not, lest he be judged. Oh, man. Don't be within slapping distance if you're going to quote that verse at me. Uh, I know that's not scriptural, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight hard to be, be a good Christian. But that's not what it's talking about, my friend. God's judgments are wonderful things. Love them. Respect them. It's not just a book of do's and don'ts. It's those judgments that protect you, that keep you, that shape you, that cleanse you. We must have God's judgments in our life each and every day. The more they control us, the more service we give for Christ. And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. We ask you to bless our prayer time to follow. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn from this brazen labor, that we would apply it to our hearts and to our lives. In your name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just give you an opportunity if you want to slip out of your seat or just pray.